This week on Daiwa, we're in Warren County. A feud between two farmers escalates until one is found dead in a cistern. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Allie, we are in Warren County this week. Have you been to it? I think I have. What'd you do there? Um, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, did you... There's like a lake or something around there. I, um, no, I had my friend, because this is where Simpson College is, right? Yep, sure is. Okay, my friend's sister lived there, and we dog sat in college at her house. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I don't think we saw anything. Don't think we left the house, but. We saw a dog. That's something. It's a good time. Yeah. Have you been? I have also been. I've spent a lot of time there, because both of my sisters went to Simpson College, and they were also both very active humans, so I went to opera performances and choir concerts and magical dinners and a golf tournament or two so oh wow lots of time it sounds like a pretty fun place um you know not visiting anything but i should uh but one of my favorite fun facts is that there is an ice cream shop or truck called the outside scoop which is originally from indianola and the truck roams around des moines and is quite a few out of quite a few festivals but I don't think people realize it's actually from Indianola instead of Des Moines. I know what you're talking about, and it is delicious ice cream. Probably, <laughs> I'm going to say the best in Des Moines, if you can find wow. the truck. I know. More than that, what's that one shop called? Like in Beaverdale. Oh, shoot. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Snookies. <laughs> different, different types, I guess. They are different types. Yeah, a peanut butter shake from Snookies. Yeah. I'm fantasizing about it. Okay, some other Warren County fun facts. Um, It's named after Joseph Warren, who was a hero in the American Revolutionary War. Joseph Warren was a Harvard graduate who became a physician that got involved in politics. He befriended familiar heroes like Samuel Adams. I'm legit drinking a Samuel Adams beer right now. (laughs) Love it. He'd be so proud. (laughs) John Hancock and others who were involved in the Sons of Liberty. He was famous for sending Paul Revere out on his midnight rides to warn of a British expedition. He died in the Battle of Breed's Hill while fighting as a private against the wishes of his generals. General Gage said his death was equal to that of 500 men. And then I've got a fun fact within a fun fact. He also, he meaning Joseph Warren, also authored a song called Free America. That was published. Wow. Should I insert a clip of Free America right now? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, I'll try and find it. Oh, love it. Uh, I have to tell you about my favorite person from Indianola really quick. Sure. Priscilla Lane. Have you heard of her? 
No. That is not who okay. I thought you were going to say. Oh, who do you think I was going to say? Well, I don't know if he's technically from Indianola, but he went to Simpson College, but is the peanut guy. Who is the peanut guy? <laughs> I need to know that. Shit. <laughs> um, one second. Okay. Who invented peanut butter? Is George? Oh, George Washington Carver. I thought he went to Iowa State. I'm pretty sure he has something to do with in Simpson College. After another college refused to admit him because he was black, Carver matriculated at Simpson College, Indianola, Iowa, where he studied art and piano. Noted American agricultural chemist, agronomist, and experimenter whose development of new products derived from peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans helped revolutionize the agricultural economy of the South. Okay, but then he transferred to Iowa State. I was like, yeah, because I know Iowa State was his alma mater, so he went to both. Interesting. I guess. I think there's a statue of him at Simpson College, though. Oh, cool. Okay, wow. It's too many. Also a great guy, but no. Priscilla. Priscilla. Priscilla Lane. Yeah. Do you know who that is? No. No. So she was like uh, in a sister's group, and I know we just chatted about this in our last episode. They weren't in vaudeville, but they all were like actresses and singers, but Priscilla was the most famous. And she was in an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Saboteur. And was also in a Frank Capra movie called Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. Wow. Yes. Pretty impressive Iowan. She's very famous. (laughs) I didn't know that. But the other fun fact is that for those not from Iowa, Warren County is also home to the National Balloon Classic, which is an annual hot air balloon festival where hundreds of hot air balloons of all colors, shapes, and designs fly up in the air at the same time. Other events include hot air balloons that fly across the city of Des Moines, hot air balloon rides, and concerts every night. All right, so you ready to get to the murder for today? Yes, but before we do, I think everyone should know that Beth was actually featured on Court TV for this actual case. She was in an episode of Tamarin Hall's Someone They Knew, and the episode is titled The Promised Land. Nick goes into the full details of this case, and Beth was there kind of as like a narrator. But you should definitely check it out. It's streaming now on Court TV's online site, or sometimes when you can just check it out on courttv.com. Yeah, that happened. Famous now. <laughs> it's fun. I oh have been stopped on the street several times by people. So I love it, but here is our version. So this story is set in Milo, Iowa, which is in Warren County, obviously, and just a few short miles away from Indianola. It's primarily a farming community with less than 800 people. I don't think I've ever stopped in Milo specifically, but from pictures, it looks like a pretty typical small town with a main street, farms, and a church just located outside of town. This story starts with Tom Lyon, who is a 52-year-old farmer in Milo, Iowa. He's well-liked by the community and is actually known as the Mayor of Motor, which is the part of Milo he lives in. Tom is built like a farmer, with equal parts muscle and stockiness. He's white with brown hair but a receding hairline, and he has dimples when he smiles. Again, people were very familiar with him, and the community knew him well. So one day in January of 2003, Tom goes out to do his chores before sunrise around 7 a.m., and he doesn't come back at his usual time around 8 a.m. His wife thinks that's a little strange because farmers have a lot to do in a day and usually stick to their schedules. 
She waits a few more hours, and when he's still not home, she gives him a call on his cell phone, and he doesn't answer. When he doesn't show up to a meeting at 2 p.m., she knows something is wrong. He's usually very punctual and a very dependable People person. in the community almost immediately get a search party together. More than 150 people search for Tom Lyon, but that first night they didn't find anything. It's not until the next night that one of the dog handlers finds some blood on a corn husk, then some more blood on the grass, and more blood on more corn husks. And it creates this kind of trail of blood. So the trail of blood leads to some hay, but the hay looks a little out of place. It's newer hay, and it seems to be covering something up. The search party clears the hay, and they find Tom Lyon's boots at the top of a cistern, which is basically a well that stores rain. They pull up the body and immediately recognize that it's Tom Lyon, and he's dead. So now we have Tom Lyon dead, dumped in a cistern, which is on Rodney Heemstra's property. To fully understand this case, you need to know the relationship between Tom Lyon and Rodney Heemstra. Allie, why don't you go ahead and describe Heemstra for us? So Rodney Heemstra was also a farmer and a neighbor of Tom's. At this time, he was 44 years old and in about the same shape as Tom Lyon. He loved farming and he was good at it too. He owned a lot of land and was fairly wealthy off the land. And he worked really hard and was always pushing to grow his business. He's white with kind of sad-looking eyes, graying hair, and permanent scruff on his beard. Heemstra and Tom ran into each other often because they were neighbors and farmers in the same small town. Six months earlier, in July of 2002, Tom was renting some land from his neighbor Lucille Rogers, who then decided to sell that land. There are certain rules when it comes to renting, selling, and buying farmland that don't necessarily apply to when you think about leasing an apartment, for example. One is, the seller must give notice to the renter at least six months ahead of time that they are going to sell the land. The renter also gets the first opportunity to buy the land. So, Lucille Rogers goes to Tom's house and offers to sell the land to him. However, the price point was too high for Tom, so he couldn't afford to buy it. Lucille Rogers goes to the next person on her list, which is another neighbor of hers, Rodney Heemstra. Rodney is excited about expanding his business and immediately signs the agreement to buy the land. However, again, we have some specific rules about farmland. If Tom were to turn over the land to Heemstra right away, Heemstra would then benefit from all of Tom's work throughout that spring and summer. So instead, they write in the contract that Tom has to give up the land on March 1st, 2003, the next spring. Between now and then, Heemstra has to maintain the land, which includes the outdoor plumbing. Right then, some jealousy was brewing after Tom found out that Heemstra could afford the land, but he couldn't. So Tom keeps his cattle on what was Lucille Rogers' land, which he has every right to do. But between July and December, a few incidents happen that anger both Tom and Heemstra. In October, Heemstra shuts off the water to Tom's cows, which makes Tom irate, for obvious reasons. For about 12 hours, Tom's cows don't have any water to drink from. Tom calls Heemstra and curses him out over the phone for less than a minute. Heemstra tries to call back, but Tom doesn't answer. That happens a few more times, which Heemstra claims is on accident. When Tom and Heemstra run into each other, there's almost always an altercation where Tom is either angry with the maintenance of Tom's farm, or Tom allegedly threatens Heemstra saying things like he won't ever get to follow through with the purchase of the This escalates to that night in January of 2003. After Tom leaves his house, before sunrise, Rodney meets him on the road. Tom sees that Rodney is behind him, and he slows down to almost 10 miles per hour on a highway road. 
Heemsta tries to pass him, but Tom quickly moves over to the other lane to block him. Tom is swerving around the road, taunting Heemstra. Tom eventually stops his truck, blocks the majority of the road by parking his truck at an angle, and gets out. He yells at Heemstra to get out as well. Heemstra gets out of the truck, and Tom is once again yelling at him, angry and irate. Eventually, Heemstra goes to the passenger side of his truck, where he has a twenty-two caliber rifle loaded with ammo. He grabs it, loads it, and shoots Tom Lyon in the eye. Tom immediately falls to the ground. Heemstra starts to panic. He takes Tom's body and tries to put it in the bed of his truck, but he's not quite strong enough. So he takes Tom's belt, straps him to the back of the truck, and drives off. But the belt breaks. Heemstra then stops in a field, sits, and wonders what to do. After about 10 or 20 minutes, he realizes that there's a cistern on one of his properties that only he and a few others know about. So he straps Tom up to the pickup again, only this time he only gets part of his body strapped, which leaves his head dragging along the ground. He drives about a mile like that until he reaches the part of his property with the cistern and dumps Tom's body there. Hides the gun, does some chores, and runs some errands. He even goes to his son's basketball game that night but he said he didn't sleep at all for two days. So at this point in our story, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle add up to Rodney Heemstra as the main suspect. Police get a search warrant to search his car and home. And as soon as police say, quote, if there's any blood in your car, we're going to find it, Heemstra breaks down and confesses. The confession is really emotional, and it almost sounds like he's talking with his friends rather than police officers. Let's skip ahead to a few months later when Heemstra is on trial. The headline here is that Heemstra is now claiming self-defense, which he didn't mention at all during either of his two taped confessions. That's right. Here's Heemstra's full story. Tom asked him to get out of his truck, so he did. Tom cursed at him and yelled at him, which really frightened him. Heemstra shouts back until Tom shoves him. Heemstra then goes around to the passenger side of his truck, grabs his rifle, and loads the gun. His intent is to only scare off Tom, not shoot him. Until Tom lunges at him, Heemstra then panics, and he shoots him in the eye. So the obvious problem here is, how can you know what's true when it's a one-sided story? The prosecution focuses on the individual choices that Heemstra made that led to Tom Lyon's death, and the individual choices that he could have made that would have led to a better outcome. Eventually, Heemstra is convicted of first-degree murder and is sentenced to, you guessed it, the mandatory Iowa sentence of life in prison without parole. However, his lawyers appeal for a couple of reasons, and it goes all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, and then it's actually overturned. Here's the gist of it. Since 1986, there were two ways someone could get convicted of first-degree murder. The first one is the one we all know, a premeditated murder that is planned out, very deliberate, and then executed. The second one is what's called a felony murder. That's when a murder occurs, whether it's accidental or on purpose, in conjunction with, quote, willful injury. Willful injury means something like kidnapping, sexual assault, or felony assault. So this happens when someone is intending to hurt the other person, and even if they accidentally kill the other person, it's still willful injury. However, in Heemstra's case, his lawyers argued that the only willful injury that Heemstra showed in this altercation is that he pointed a gun at Tom Lyon. The Iowa Supreme Court agreed that the term, quote, willful injury was becoming too broad, So they overturned this case and reverted back to the original intent of first-degree murder. This change is made in 2006, and Heemstra gets a retrial. In the new trial, Heemstra is convicted of voluntary manslaughter, which has a much different sentencing. 
voluntary manslaughter is up to 10 years in prison, and his sentence is cut in half because of things like good behavior. He had already served about three and a half years, so in the end, he went from serving a life sentence in prison to serving just two additional years. Heemstra was freed in 2008 after serving just four years in prison. When retrials like this happen, it can be really exhausting for the family who has to go through the exact same emotional process all over again. Rhonda Lyon even admitted that she probably didn't put up the best legal fight she could have simply because she didn't have the energy to. After many legal battles, according to the Des Moines Register article from 2012, Iowa District Court judges approved the distribution of proceeds from the sale of about 1,200 acres of Heemstra's farmland, which brought in more than $11 million. While the exact terms weren't disclosed, it was estimated that Rhonda Lyon got about $7 million after she sought damages for Tom's wrongful death. Heemstra never apologized to the Lyon family. Rodney Heemstra is now 62 years old. While he's a little hard to track, I believe he now has a farming business in Urbandale, Iowa. Super interesting case, and again, you should go check out Best Episode on Court TV, The Promised Land, but let's hear what Taps has to say about this one. Hey, Tabs. Thanks for joining. Hello. We are doing Warren County today. Have you been? Yes, many times. It's a pretty populous county now because it's taking a lot of population from Polk County. Have you been to Milo? I don't know if I've ever. I've been to Indianola, but I don't know if I've ever been to Milo. Nice. I don't think so. Any fun facts about the county? Not that I am aware of. Is Simpson in Indianola? Yeah. I've had some off and on dealings with Simpson College once in a while, but that's about it. I feel like we have you stumped. Usually you always have. <laughs> uh, do you have any farmers in your family? Um, absolutely. I mean, the entire family were farmers until my generation. That's when they started branching off. So we have lived the farm life. All right, well, let's get into it. So Heemstra and Tom Lyon were feuding for a while, and Heemstra even claimed at one point that Tom was following him around and taunting him while he was doing chores on part of his properties. Could Heemstra have gone to the police for this? And if so, what would they have done about it? He probably should have gone to the police over it to make them aware of it and to make him, he was serious about it. There's been a lot of... uh, Fights in Iowa over ground, over farm ground. Any other recommendations if you have two people that especially despise each other and it's perhaps escalated? Well, you can get a restraining order. They're a little bit more difficult, um, but it's possible that you could go to a judge and ask for a restraining order against a person to have them stay away or keep off your land or things of that nature. But I think if you just make the local law enforcement agencies aware of it, they might be able to diffuse things before it gets too bad. Good tip. A 22 caliber rifle doesn't have a very big bullet. Any tips on how to use a gun like that safely? Well, actually a 22 caliber and its companion, a 25 caliber, at one time was the uh, choice of profession, professional assassins. A Why? 22 or a 25 caliber bullet, in some cases, will enter a skull and not exit. And it will kind of bounce around inside the brain and cause a lot of damage. If you recall, 
President Reagan was shot with a 22 caliber bullet. By John Hinckley. Hinckley. I think I read somewhere that he was performing a concert or trying to. He's out um, or he's off watch, whatever. He was never convicted. So, yeah. Well, how do you know that that was the assassin gun of choice? That's just kind of a wife's tale that floats around the law enforcement industry. And then how, like, what, how would you safely use it? Well, I mean, it's a firearm. You use it yeah. just like any other firearm, but a 22 caliber bullet will travel quite the distance. It is a rifled bullet, so it goes pretty far. I always get the feeling that like gun owners kind of don't think much about them because it's supposedly so little. I don't know where I get that idea. But. No, I think they're, they take them pretty seriously. I mean, they're a rifled 20, a 22 rifle can be a pretty dangerous thing if you don't use it right. Okay. I mean, they, they tend to be the weapon of choice of a first gun for a kid or something just because they don't have a lot of recoil. Gotcha. Fun fact. That's the only gun I've ever shot. Not a rifle, but a 22 <laughs> pistol, I guess. At like a gun range. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, sorry, we'll move on. Um, so background on this question, this case actually changed one of the laws on first-degree murder, I guess, or like one of the rulings for first-degree murder. So the Iowa, it went up to the Iowa Supreme Court, and it now states that if the act causing willful injury is the same act that causes the victim's death, the former is merged into the murder and therefore cannot serve as the predicate felony for felony murder purposes. So do you remember that change? Yes, or sometimes called lesser included offense rule or things of that nature. Can a, a crime with the same facts, in other words, the same aggregate measures that create a crime, if they're both the same, you can't be convicted of both. And so it just clarified that issue. Gotcha. Did that affect anything that you had worked on? Not that I can remember. I know that when I prosecuted cases, we were very uh, cognizant of the lesser included offense. I don't want to say statute because it really is more of a, a paradigm, but just to, to see once how we were charging cases that we made sure that we didn't have a, two crimes with the same elements and charge the guy with both or convict the person of both. I'm assuming that people that were in prison could have appealed once that came out and either gotten lesser sentences or something on their case would have changed. Yeah, they usually when there's a major change in the law that favors defendants, they're allowed to come back and try to re-sentence or have the court of appeals or somebody look at their case. Yeah. All right. And what's everyone's final thoughts on this case? If I recall, this case went on for I want to say 20 years because there was a huge civil lawsuit component to it because there was so much, there were farm, there's farmland and stuff involved in it. And I, if I'm recalling correctly, I don't think it was that many years ago that the civil side was settled. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a little bit weird that it's such a one-sided case, you know, during the trial, you just kind of have to go off of his word and who knows if he's lying or what. Yeah. It's too bad. Well, thanks for joining TAPS. We'll give you a call next time. Good night.
Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.